Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, church family. I want to read a, a, a segment out of uh, Daniel. Actually, I'm going to give you some pretext. What's going on is, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, has had a dream, okay? He invited all of his wise men to come and interpret the dream for him. But the thing is that he didn't just want them to interpret the dream, okay? He wanted them to tell him his dream and then interpret the dream, right? So his, his advisors are like, okay, this is obviously impossible. We can't tell you your dream. And they say something like, um, only the gods could tell you your dream and they don't live among man, okay? So they're like, this can't happen, right? Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar goes into an uproar, right? He's in a rage because they can't, tell him his dream and interpret it for him. And he says, let all of the wise counselors be killed, okay? So he's like a, a toddler with infinite power, right? Just kill everyone who doesn't give me what I want. And um, so Daniel steps up, who is included in that group that would have been killed. He steps up and he responds by saying, your majesty, there is no wizard, magician, fortune teller, or astrologer who can tell you that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, See, church, wisdom is valuable. Foresight is valuable. Understanding is valuable. The Proverbs compel us to seek out wisdom, but the thing is that wisdom has an end, and where wisdom ends, revelation begins. Revelation is necessary in those places, okay? So the thing is that we couldn't know God unless he revealed himself to us. No wisdom could find out who God is, Yahweh. We couldn't live in unity with him unless he chose to come near to us. We couldn't learn to be like him unless he chose to make himself known by us. So church, I want to praise the Lord this morning for the mysteries that he reveals. He has revealed himself to us, and by no other way could we know him other than revelation. So after Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar responds by saying, Your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings and the one who reveals mysteries. So church, as we worship this morning, let's seek to find the God who has made himself known to us. He has invited us in, and he's gone so far as to call us his children. So let's worship this morning the God of revelation. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for choosing to make yourself known to us, a people who aren't worthy of knowing you. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness that you show to us over and over. Thank you so much for the revelation that you've given us. Thank you so much for making yourself known to us. Lord, for revealing your mysteries to us and allowing us permission to know you with clarity and with depth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so glad you're here today. If you're talking to somebody, tell them 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. And I wanted to mention that Tanner's grandparents are here, all the way from Missouri, Fred and Janet. And so if you see them around, they're here visiting Tanner and maybe a little bit of uh, Ethan and uh, Daryl and Jenny as well. So we're glad you're here. All right, First Peter chapter 1. Outstanding Christians. I think um, I've been hearing a lot of this this week, but I think it's probably been true for a while now, is that there's a general uneasiness about the times that we live in. And as we sang our songs this morning, I felt that it it went beautifully with this message. You decide, but uh, in 1963, you know, all the way back then, some can't even imagine what that must have looked like. I wasn't born yet, but I know there were people around. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song 
the times are changing. The times are a-changing. Sorry if we want to get the title right. And he wrote it as if it was something new. <laughs> They're just now changing. They were changing in a particular way in that decade, but um, change has been happening uh, from day one. The moment, uh, you know, after creation and the fall, it seems as if change just kind of settles in and is part of, um, part of the way things are. Uh, we can probably we could probably go to a comfortable spot in our mind. I don't know if you can do this, but I can. And a lot of times, uh, my childhood was a really good childhood, and and I'm really grateful for what my parents gave me. And uh, sometimes I think, man, it'd be so much. It was so much easier back then. But you know, because I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about um, you know possible nuclear war and all of the things that could have happened. I, I don't know how many of you were around when they showed uh, the movie The Day After. Anybody remember that? The day after, and like, this is what would happen if all-out <laughs> nuclear war took place. And so, uh, because I was a kid, I was kind of insulated from all of that, but uh, there were a lot of people that were were really nervous about things like that happening. And, and sometimes I think we forget and we look through rose-colored glasses at what's happened in the past as if it were uh, without its problems. Um, we probably would like to change some of the problems that we have for some of the problems they had. But I want to just... Uh, I want to emphasize the fact that there have always been problems with fallen humanity. And so um, I want to encourage us that we take a, a perspective on this, and that's what the message is about today. The, the times have always been changing, uh, but we're, we're, uh, what we're seeing happen today are really kind of the fruits of things that were seeded back then, and they're becoming settled. Um, it, that doesn't absolve this generation from responsibility. I think every generation that comes up uh, requires responsibility. You have to take up responsibility either to go along with what has been given to us or to change it. And uh, we, we have a responsibility in that. And Satan loves to provide a moving target of hot-button issues that keep us running from here to there. Do you know what I'm talking about? That there's always there's always something in the moment. It seems that we start to uh, to deal and be um, trying to think of the right word here. Outraged at one issue, then that issue is no longer the issue. There's something else to be outraged with. Can you relate to that a little bit? That it seems to shift. Like um, you know, years ago, gay marriage was the problem with the church. The church was like, this isn't right. We violated something that's sacred. And, and it's true, and we should be outraged by that. But then it seems to have completely passed that by to another issue that deals with gender. Are you with me? And so there's all of these hot-button issues, and it's always been that way. If you go back to the 60s, it's, uh, it's the sexual revolution and how we don't have to, we don't have to worry about these uh, time-tested uh, ideas about what marriage and family should look like. We can just define family however we want to. And we're outraged by that, and we're outraged by this. And it just seems that Satan has this little tactic, if we're not careful, that he can just move the direction of the outrage from one thing to another. And so I want to I talk a little bit about that, because I think there's a way that we can, we can work uh, in such a way as to be more stable. And you might think that you've heard uh, in what I've said that we shouldn't stand up for the right causes, and that's not what I said, okay? Is everybody on board with that? I'm saying that he loves to distract us with a series. And the moment that we get fixated upon one particular outrage, he throws another at us. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up for right causes. I think we should. I think there are worthy causes 
that deserve to be debated in the public sphere, to be talked about in the church, to be taught at home. I think those are all true. But what the devil is really, really good at is going and setting one fire after another, uh, and we can end up doing nothing more than running fire to fire. And here we have to be careful that life does not become protest over worship. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's not protest over worship. Let's get things in the right priority. Protest is important, but worship is what we're created for. So we don't want to be protesting over worship, and we don't want to have doom over hope. Please hear me when I say this. I'm not talking about preaching a gospel where there's no sin. I'm not talking about that. Outrage has its place among responsible Christians. But I've noticed through, uh, through my life, which is all, all of my life I've been in the church, and I've noticed that people love their outrage almost as much as they love God. And that's dangerous. Hey, we love God. The reason that we're outraged is because we love righteousness. And let's not get those backwards. Sometimes there are folks that they love to be outraged. They love that. They love to be stirred up. They love to be angry at something. We shouldn't love to be angry at something. We should feel responsible to be angry at something because we love God and it's a violation of his nature and his design. Do you realize that the, the reason that the church has problems with the idea of gay marriage is because it goes against what God has designed for wholeness within the family. Okay, It's not that we hate. It's not that we're scared. Everybody talks about how you're phobic of one thing or another. We're not phobic. What we are is concerned, and we love people. And so I, I want to encourage us that let's have our priorities right in all of these things and that we not love outrage over worshiping God. So in the same way, you know, we can get that out of balance. In the same way we can get family. Do you know, as much as you love your family, you can love your family more than God? And what would that be? Idolatry, wouldn't it? We can love ministry. We can love the ministry that God's called us to more than we love God. And we can, we can do things because we love ministry rather than loving God. And uh, we can even do that with our own lives where all the blessings God's given us, we learn to love that more than we love God. And so we constantly, we sang about it this morning, we have to challenge the idols in our soul. I think it was John Calvin who said that the heart is a perpetual idol factory, that it continues to bring up new idols all the time. And what we have to do is we have to put down the idols and worship God. And in some cases, that doesn't mean total abandonment, because you can't abandon some of the situations you're in, what we have to do is learn to love God more than those things. And so he's called us to that kind of thing. Outrage, too, can become an idol, the primary thing that we're about rather than being about God. We want to look at First Peter chapter 1, and it deals with a circumstance similar to what we may feel that we're in today, a shifting sands and and times that are changing and, and not knowing exactly where to put our feet in a, a world like this, um, you know, transience, whatever word you would want to give to it, where we just feel that things are unstable. Is there anything stable in an unstable world? I think is a question that we can deal with this morning. So to appreciate this passage, we need to know a few things about it. Let's, let me mention five quick things. The first thing is, that the, that the letter that Peter has written here in First Peter is to a broad audience. So he's not dealing with, 
like the Corinthian church has a particular issue. They have particular issues. He's not dealing with like circumstance in a location. He's dealing with something that the entire church is dealing with. Okay. So he writes to a, a broad variety of churches. The topic that kind of overtakes most of Peter is how do we live in a world of adversity? There's adversity in the world. They're not going to uh, the world as it, as it is that we've come out of is not going to cheerlead for us to serve Jesus. They're not going to pat us on the back and say, great job. We love what you're doing with the place and keep it up. Um, we're we're going to find many times that because hearts are convicted, they hate Jesus and they hate those who follow Jesus, even if that hatred is sort of latent and they don't even know why it exists. Okay, So he's writing to a church that's uh, dealing with adversity in the world. And then... Uh, he's talking about the durability of salvation. He's already done this in the first 12 verses. We're going to look at verse 13 and following of chapter 1. But the first 12 verses, he's laid this all out, the durability of our salvation, that it, this salvation can hold up under any circumstance if we'll cling to Jesus. Do you, not, do you understand that? that? That this is a faith that is made for both good and bad times. Come on. Do you hear me on that? Some, some people preach faith like it's only faith when it's going well. No, this is faith for good and bad times. And then he talks about the value of salvation and the privilege of salvation. We'll, we'll cover some of that as well in just a moment as we look at our verses specifically. Times will change with all of its changing, and even change will change with the coming of Jesus. Let's look at our verses here in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13 and following. He's said all that he said up to this point, and I've kind of covered some of the highlights. Verse 13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and faith and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought about to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, Be holy because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold or silver that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Does it feel like we've just said a mouthful there? It's because it's a really long sentence. (laughs) That's why. In verse 20, it says, He who chose, uh, was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake, uh, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable things but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And so Peter is talking to a church that's in uh, tumultuous times, troubled times, shifting times, and a varied church. So this is a lot of different localized circumstances. And he's saying to them that these things are true. These things are worth holding on to in a shifting world. You can, you, can, you can set your feet on something solid in the middle of a world of shifting sand. Okay, And we need to know that too because we might feel stressed out or uneasy by what we see on TV or what's going on in politics or what's going on with our family or maybe in our city. 
Whatever things might be, or might be just bummed out because summer hasn't come yet. Summer's on the way, okay? It's on its way. Uh, I can't make any promises, but I will tell you this. Last year, it didn't rain until a certain point. Remember that? And then one Wednesday night, I'm, I'm not taking total credit, but somebody said, we should pray for rain to come. I'm going to tell you, it was Miss Evelyn. And then it didn't stop raining for the rest of the summer. And I told somebody at the end of it, <laughs> we were proce- uh, I know when it was, we were processing meat that we'd gotten at the meat process. So it was sometime in September, and it just rained from the 1st of July to September. Remember that? And I was telling this guy, I said, well, we prayed about that at church, that it would rain after all that, and it hasn't stopped raining. Maybe we should have prayed that it would stop raining, but we never did that. So if the sun doesn't come out, um, just talk to Miss Evelyn. She's got, a, she's got a hotline to God. She can talk to him and tell him we need some sunshine. Uh, but the, t- the times are changing. We need something firm to set our, uh, our feet upon. You might be stressed out, but we need to know that there's an approach that we can have. And that's who Peter is writing to, is people who are, are, are facing difficulty, stressful situations, and persecution, and things probably a lot worse than we're going through. And so he writes to them a few things. The first thing he, he tells us that we should do in this, these troubling times in verse 13 through 17 is that we should have a we should prioritize the pure faith, okay? The pure faith, or excuse me, the pure path. Verse thirteen through seventeen. Look at this once again with me. Therefore, the mind, uh, the therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought about to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the uh, evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, but. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. He's calling, he's calling us to a, a life of purity, a path of purity. And while we might feel that the world has gone crazy, they've lost moral compass, everybody's going a different direction, everybody's deciding in their own eyes what's right, What's the Christian path in all of that? The Christian path is to find out what it is that pleases God and to live that out. We don't have to wander around in moral confusion. We don't have to, we don't have to go by the relative ethics of our culture. We can know what God wants for us, and we can live those out, even if nobody else does. You know, some, so many times we, we give too much credit. Like, it just would be so much easier if everybody went along with it. It probably would be easier. But God has called us to this, and he's empowered us to do this, and so we can. When we talk about the pure path and prioritizing that path, this is a, this is a call to have a certain kind of thinking in our lives. I'd like you to notice verse 13 again. It says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And so this has to do with hoping forward. It's a particular mindset that we need to have in today's world that that the times are changing and the way that things are are not the way they're always going to be. And the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ because he's going to return and take possession and be the the leader. Do you understand that? That this is part of our, our Christian faith. It's not just this endless cycle of people being born and then saved and going to heaven in a perpetual future. There's a time when Jesus is coming back. And the system will change once and for all. 
Do you, do you understand that that's, that's good news? This isn't, this isn't necessarily narrowing the focus to one aspect of his coming because uh, some would divide uh, his, the rapture and then his final coming after the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then he comes and sets. He's, Peter's not trying to set out for us a distinct end-time chart. What he's saying is that there will be a day when the Lord will come, and what is will be transformed. He will be the leader. And all the things that we have to endure now as believers where we're on the outside and not on the inside, that will change. And the difficulties that you go through and, and having to watch our world um, fade away and, and walk away from God and live in raucous ways, we won't, have to, we won't have to see that anymore because that will all be changed. Notice he says that we're to have a, a mindset here. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought about when Christ is revealed at his coming. So this is now looking not just at the present moment. This is really important as Christians that we not get overtaken by our present moment. We've got present circumstance, but this isn't the last word on all of this. There's a hope that we have in Christ, that he's coming, he's returning. And so he encourages us not to get stuck looking at this moment, but also that in, in living this moment, we look forward to the moment of his coming. And he uses a phrase, I think the NIV captures the sense of it really well, but the phrase, the first part of this is, gird up the loins of your mind. That's kind of a crazy statement, is it? Because there's a metaphor in all of that. But the idea that is, is being uh, purported in that is that we're to, to gird up your loins is to make ready. Okay? So it's when uh, guys would run, like you probably remember this from the Old Testament. Remember is Elijah's, he outran the chariot of Ahab. He gird up his loins, which means basically he takes his long skirt, tucks it around between his legs and so that he can run and not be hindered by his robe. Okay? So we don't really have to deal with that metaphor because we wear pants today or shorts if we're running or whatever it may be. But that's the picture is, is be ready uh, to run. Be ready to run. And so when he says, with your minds, with minds that are alert, he's calling us to be ready with our minds, to look with hope at Jesus' coming. Alert is ready for action. And then he says, your mind should also be sober. Notice this. This uh, word for sober means to be in control of your thought processes and not to be in danger of irrational or impulsive thinking driven by the changing landscape. See, instead, we're living by hope. We can, we can get fixated. There used to be this program on television back in the 80s where every week they would um, retranslate the present week's news events into an end-time chart. Okay, if you thought real hard, you could probably name it. And I remember as a kid thinking, God, last week that meant something else. And this week it means this. And it just seemed like there was a working of this fear in whatever was happening was was trying to be translated in this. And it, in a way, it kind of gave me a sense of lost confidence in those predictions. I know God's true, but I don't know if I trust these guys. I know what he said is true, but I don't know if I believe what they're saying is true because every week it changes with whatever the moment in time it is. And I think as Christians, we can run after this event and that event and, and, and um, certain things can capture our attention and we can go from one thing to another and even with trends within the church, we can do that. Do you know that? That there have been trends that have gone through the church. 
You know, if, if you look at the decades, you can almost see what those trends are. And in one decade, it's all about worship. In another decade, it's all about demons. In another decade, it's all about healings. In another decade, it's all about this. And we get our fascinations, and it makes us look a little unstable. Why don't we fix our eyes on Jesus and realize he's the God that has control over all of that, right? And so we get our focus fixed upon him, not being caught off guard by the momentary thing that's going on. We, we need to be present in that moment. We need to, at times, we need to take stands that vo- are vocal. But at the back of that is a Jesus who is still on the throne. On the back of that, we're still living as stable in Christ as we were 20 years ago or 30 years ago if we're in him. So our position, our stability has not changed by the changing times. I hope you'll grab a hold of that because tomorrow I can guarantee you if you turn on the news, you're going to get something bad. Okay? That's not, that doesn't spoil the promises of God. You might go through something difficult tomorrow. That doesn't spoil the promises of God. You're stable in him, and so stand in him. And that's what he wants to do when he says be sober. He's not just talking about a mind that's devoid of, of alcoholic influence. Okay? That's true. We shouldn't. shouldn't be intoxicated, right? The Bible tells us that. But this has to, this is applying that picture to the mind. You know how a person who is drunk can be irrational going from one extreme emotion to the next, right? One moment angry, the next moment crying and sad, the next moment with flowery language of love. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? And it's like, there's no stability in that. And that's the point here is that he's calling us to have the kind of mind that can fix our, our attention on Jesus and not be driven about by all the stuff that's going on. Be aware of it. Be involved in it where God would have you to be. But don't be driven by it. We're driven by the Spirit of God and not those things. Amen. That's good preaching, Pastor. I agree. And then uh, the next thing is nonconformity. Notice verse 14 here. When it, when it uh, comes to walking the pure path, part of the pure path is nonconformity. Okay? This doesn't mean nonconformity for the sake of being a nonconformist. Like some nonconformists, if you brought them in a room of nonconformists, they would become conformists again just so they weren't uh, among the nonconformists anymore. Are you with me? It's kind of a contradiction. What their basic mantra is, is I don't want to be like you. And I think what God is calling us to is nonconformity with the world so that we can be like him. Okay? Because there are places where uh, God's ways, and this is so obvious, it doesn't even need to be said, but God's ways and the world's ways go different paths. Right? And we need to choose his way. So when we talk about nonconformity, this word for conform here, look at verse 14 with me. It says, as obedient children to God, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So this, is, this is, seems to be Peter saying, now you're in a different family. And you need to act like the family you're in and not the family you're from. Can you see that? As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That's the past life. And he uses the same word for conform that Paul does in Romans 12 when he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world any longer, but be transformed. It's the same word. And this word means to to form or to mold one's behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or standard. So there is a pattern or standard of things that that um, 
it both goes with Christian living and non-Christian living. And I think uh, it's Phillips, J.B. Phillips in his translation of Romans 12 says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Okay? It wants to make you its jello, right? But you can't do that. We need to resist that and be nonconformists with the, with the rebels. We rebel in a different way. We rebel rebellion. And so, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had before. And here's the funny thing that seems to happen. I don't know if you've seen this in your own life, but the more a child determines it's not going to be like its parent, right, the more they become like them. Anybody, anybody witness that and observe that? I'm not going to be like you. Well, then we end up in time being uh, very similar. And it's a similar way when it comes to the things of God. Some people have thrown off any restraints that God has set up because they say, I just want to be myself. I just want to be myself. And you know what happens is predictable. They end up being just like every other cookie-cutter worldling that's out there. Okay, The face of it looks different, but the behavior, the attitudes, it all looks just like everything else. And the only way for you to be truly original is to be who you are in God. And this is really good news because when you were born, you didn't say, even if you're a twin, you didn't say, you know what, I want my thumbprint to be different from my siblings. You had nothing to do with that. All you were, you just, you just were at that point. How I many would recognize that when you were a baby, you just kind of were depending, you were dependent upon everybody else. You weren't, you weren't writing theses and you weren't doing, uh, you know, graphic design or whatever it was. You just kind of were there waiting on people to take care of you crying out when they did it. And yet, you are unique. And how did that happen? Because God made you that way. And when we really find ourselves in God, we become the unique people we're intended to be. And so when we talk about nonconformity, the very best way to be the original you, you were created to be, the real you, is to be the real you God intended you to be. And then you'll find that wholeness that comes with being who you were created to be. If you're searching for yourself, search in God. That's the only place you'll find yourself. The other searches are in all the wrong places as the country song goes, right? So then notice the next thing here in verse 15 and 16. This is the path, the pure path that we're called to. The pure path involves our thinking and looking towards God, walking towards him, waiting for him. It includes nonconformity. We're not going to go the way of the world. We're going to go the way of Christ. And then... Um, the, the third thing here is uh, we're to be holy in verse 15 and 16. It says, there, therefore, um, sorry, verse 15. It says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I, I am holy. Now, holiness can mean two things. First, it can mean dedication to God and being reserved to him. But then it can also, it also has another meaning that's related to it. And that means uh, to become like God and to share his character. Okay? Some things about God, he doesn't transfer to us no matter how much we would like it. Like omnipresence. How many would love to be omnipresent in, on some days? Like where, okay, I need to be here and I need to be at the store and I need to be at the park for a birthday party and all of this. And man wish we could just be there. And we don't get to be omniscient. He doesn't share that with us. 
and he doesn't share with us uh, omnipotence. We're not all powerful, so we're dependent, derivative creatures. We need him, okay? But he does share other things with us. He shares love with us, and those are communicable attributes that are like God. He's a loving and a kind God, and we can we can share in his holiness in that way. We can share in his kindness. We can share in his righteousness to some degree. His is perfect righteousness. Ours is derived from his, but we can be righteous. All of these things are things that God shares with us, and so the reason I want to separate those two is because I think this is how the Christian life functions. One is, you remember the song, um, Just As I Am Without One Plea? Remember that song? We can sing that with authenticity that God wants us to come just as we are, but he doesn't want to leave us there. Okay? So when you come to Christ, you will come in the smelliness of your sin, just as I did. But when we come to him repentant, he takes our our sin away, and he gives us a newness of life. And then what he does is he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can be like him. The, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit lives within us so that now we can live the life of holiness that he desires. So I, I want to separate that because when it comes to holiness, it's both positional and practical. Positional means that when you come to Christ, if you've never received Christ before, you might still be walking in with the smell of sin on you. That you come to him, and in that moment of coming to him, he calls you a saint. He calls you his holy one. Okay? This is beautiful. And then what happens is by his Holy Spirit, he comes in and he starts to make that practical in your life by helping you to progress in true living holiness. This is what God calls us to. So it's both positional and practical. And that's what he's talking about here, I think, is that we are to be holy. I think the emphasis mostly is upon the act of living in a holy way, living in a way that replicates God's holiness by what he's called us to be. But positionally, we're holy, and he's making us into that holiness. And he wants us to be like him. It's a separation from the world. And so we share in the things of God's nature as far as it's possible for us to share in them love and goodness and righteousness it's the call to be like him and different from fallen humanity. And then I'd like you to notice verse 17 here, and this is, has to do with detachment. If you're going to walk the pure path, it, there's gonna, it's going to require of us some detachment. Notice what it says. Since you call on a father who judges each, work, each person's work impartially, live out your time. He's talking about our time here. Um, some people say this isn't real life. The real life is the next life. No, this is real life too, but this is only part of it, okay? There's a life after life for the Christian. Good news, isn't it? So there is life after this. This is real life, and when he talks about your time, he's talking about your time here in this aspect of our life. Live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. Foreigners in reverent fear. What a a strange way to say that. This is call. This is a call for detachment. Maybe it's better said, uh, those who are not from here and not staying here, but passing through. Okay, we're to live out our life uh, in this life as those who are not from here. God created us, sent us into this world, and we're not staying here because there's a, there's the next world that He's created, right? And He will create the new heavens and new earth, and we're just passing through. Remember what the psalmist said? It's kind of dreary. He said, uh, you know, we just have a, a few days that are full of weariness and toilsome uh, effort, and then we, what? We fly away, okay? And uh, we have this life, and 
three score and ten, and if by strength, eighty, right? Things like that. It's not giving us an exact number. It's just saying this is generally the thing that happens. And so what we know is that life is short, but this is not all that there is in life. And so how are we to approach this? I think a lot of Christians look at life as if this is really all there is. And that's not healthy Christian living. We need to understand that this is only a first phase of life. And it matters what we do here. We need to live it to the full for God. But there's another life that's coming on its heels. And so we need to walk the pure path. We need to prioritize the pure path over the impure path that we used to live and now has been changed in God. Let me go quickly into this next one. We should treasure the precious blood. We should treasure the precious blood. This is in verse 18 through 21. And look what it says in verse 18 and following there. I've jumped past in the paragraphs because I think uh, the actual thought starts in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and your hope are in God. Notice, uh, it tells us with what we were redeemed. Did you notice this morning that when we we were singing, we talked about redemption a lot. We were singing about redemption. Redemption is the price that God paid for your freedom so that you could be a part of the family. The price that covers our, our sins, okay? What is it that we were redeemed with? Well, verse 18 says it's more precious than gold or silver. Okay, a lot of people think that's the highest of value is what we can uh, earn in terms of economics, but it's more precious than all of that. It's more precious than gold or silver. It's the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. Notice it's an unblemished lamb in verse 19, and then the chosen one in verse 20. And 21 reminds us how God brought Jesus to victory through the trials of the world and uh, the exercise of fallen human power. Look at verse 21 with me here real quick. It says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. And I think what he's trying to do here, what Peter's trying to do here, is he's trying to get us to understand the importance of our knowledge in verse 18. Notice verse 18, it says there, uh, for you know that it was not with these things that you were purchased. Why is it important that we would know that? Why is it important that we would know what it was that we were purchased with? Doesn't the cost that was paid set value? I think it does. I think it tells the value of your Christian life, the worth of it. And when he shows us that we should know these things, it's also showing us that this is the same God we hope in. The knowledge of um, of him with uh, is meant to inspire our faith in God. We should not too quickly look at the glamour of the world if we're captivated by the beauty of the Savior and his great worth. And what we're to value most will determine our course. We sang about treasure this morning too, and our treasure and our hearts go together, you know that? If he who was so beautiful, if he who was so pure, if he who was the chosen one at the exclusion of all others would lay down his life for us, we should treasure him, and we should also understand the treasure that he's placed upon us, the value he's placed upon us. 
And that ought to stand in opposition to all that this world could offer. And say, nothing will compare in beauty to, our, to my Savior. Okay? He wants us to walk this pure path and to know also the precious blood that's covered our sins. And finally here, verse 22 through 25, we should cling to the permanent word. We should cling to the permanent word. Uh, you know, we can't adjust the Bible to our lives. We need to adjust our lives to it. Look at what it says in verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. All people, it says, all people are, are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. There's a lot of things that are being said today, and uh, not a lot of it can hold weight. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of blown away by how many podcasts are out there. Do you, anybody else? How many people are speaking out into the ether? And they don't know how many people exactly are listening, but everybody seems to have a podcast. They could be a nobody. They could be an old defunct actor or something, and They've got to tell the world their views on stuff, and people dial in and listen to it. And it amazes me at how much time and breath and money are invested in temporal things, things that don't matter, things that will change, and opinions that aren't based upon truth. They're just based upon somebody's perception of the truth. Uh, and, and those things have great value, and they're great money makers and there's lots of books out there that are written. Uh, it kind of depresses me a little bit to think somebody had spent all this time writing that book, and it's in the bin for 25 cents at Value Village. I, that depresses me a little bit because I think how much time was spent in that. If I were that author and I saw my book in the bin like that, I would wonder what life was all about. How about you? But But that's the way that it is, and... It makes you really step back, especially in the day as there's so much glut in terms of information. And in I'm going to tell you, when, when I was in high school in the 1990s, you know, way back in the dark ages, some of you went to even darker ages of high school way back when. But they had this commercial that came out when the Internet was really beginning to emerge big time. And it was some, I think it was some kid that talked about the information superhighway. Anybody remember that commercial? Information superhighway, and we're anticipating that just at the click of a finger, you can have all the world's information. That was going to be a brand new thing. And what we've found since then is it hasn't increased the value of information. It's done the opposite because there's so much inflation of information. We now have to determine what really matters. And people have gone from knowing things to saying, I don't need to know it. I just need to know where to find it. And so in some ways, our souls are diminished in that because... We're not becoming real thinking people. We're dependent upon machines to do our thinking for us. And it's gotten even worse than that. I, don't, I, I hesitate to say this in a group of uh, people that has kids in the room because they could use this to cheat on their homework. You can now get AI to write essays for you, right? Sad, isn't it? I mean, it's cool, but where is it going to lead? And we need to ask questions like that. These are shifting times. And the reason I'm, I'm bringing all this up is that there is a word that has great value. It's the word that God has spoken to us. 
It's the word of the gospel. And this is an eternal word. When all the, the shifting things of time will have passed, that word will endure. And that's the word we cling to. When, when all the newscasts have said all their pieces and all their bad news and all their little uh, human interest stories, when all of that's been done, there's a word that will still stand after all of that. It's the word of God. It will stand through all of it. The politics, the word of God will stand through all of it. Come on, with me? Through all of that rhetoric, the word of God stands. And that makes me excited because I think with that, it's telling us there's something firm that we can put our feet down upon in a world like this. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And this tells us it stands despite changes in nature. Hey, we had a rough winter. Everybody agrees to that. We had a lot of, I, I, I'm probably the outlier on that because I just loved it. I grinned ear to ear when I was shoveling my driveway. I know you hate me for that, but I was loving it. But for others, it's the end of the world. It's a reason to move away, right? So sad that, uh, uh, you know, we can, we can face times like that and be like, I don't like the season or whatever it may be. Uh, but despite the changes, and maybe the summer hasn't come soon enough, or maybe there's too much, whatever it is, despite that, the Word of God stands. And it stands despite changes in people. We go through seasons of life. We go through times when we're uh, feeling really good about things and times when we're not feeling so good about things, times of illness and, and times of health and times of mourning and loss and times of great joy. The Word of God stands through all of it. It's secure. It's unchanged. Come on, are you with me? I'm laboring my point, but I think this is important. It stands through the seasons of life. Why does it matter that it endures? Well, it tells us that God will not let it go. He will not let his word go, and he will remind us at the end of history of everything that he said. Our lives will be compared to it. He'll not forget it, and he'll not adjust it. If he said something's wrong then it's wrong. There are universal things that God has said is wrong, and, and we will be judged by those things. And it doesn't matter if our generation has said those kind of ethics are old-fashioned. They're not old-fashioned. If God said them, they're forever relevant. Are you with me? Why does it matter that it endures for those reasons? He quotes Isaiah 40. I'm not going to take time to read it, although I have it in my notes. That was kind of ambitious. But at Isaiah 40, this is, uh, Isaiah has prophesied ahead of time of the judgment that's coming on Israel. And uh, when it comes to chapter, chapters 1 through 39, are, it's like this cycle of judgments and words of encouragement. And then it comes to chapter 40, and it's just like this massive word of comfort and encouragement that comes. And what it's written to is, okay, once you've gone into exile, I want you to hear a word of hope because you're going to need it. God's people went into exile. They were away from their homeland. They were away from um, the regular temple sacrifices and everything that was familiar. And they needed a word. They were in, a, they were in times of shifting sands, kind of like what we may be feeling right now. And God's word in the middle of that is the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Who will compare to the Lord? And he goes through this and he says, who's, you know, held the, the world in his hand? And he encourages Israel that through all of these shifting times, they can count on the fact that he will stay true to his word in Isaiah 40. And they would need it. Do you know, in the Bible, um, 
there are a lot of things that are it's, uh, the Bible says will endure forever. I'm going to mention quickly 11 of them. Number one is his kingdom, Second Samuel 7, his kingdom will endure forever. First Chronicles 16:41, his love will endure forever, and it says that over and over and over. Of all the things that will endure forever, the Bible says his, of his love more than anything else. It says that. Um, the fear of the Lord will endure forever. His name will endure forever. Um, his throne will endure forever. His glory, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his works, and his word will endure forever. And what this can do for us in times like this is that it creates a mooring for us. You know, when you're in the ocean, I'm from, I'm from right in the middle of the uh, continental United States. And, like, to get to an ocean was probably 14-hour drive at least in any direction and sometimes more. And so you, got, you went out on lakes, but lakes, it's not like the ocean. And so when a kid from Kansas goes deep-sea fishing, you never experienced that kind of tossing and turning before. And I'll tell you, it's a little unsettling. But something happens at the end of that as the boat comes to dock and they... They throw out their mooring lines and they connect themselves to the dock. It's something stable. And you know that, you know, you're back safely in harbor once again. And so what these things do, they act like moorings for us to something that's strong, something that is enduring as we tie ourselves to the Lord. We can endure any shifting tide, any um, wave of the ocean. Peter's attempt to... I don't know if you remember the story. You probably do. When Jesus came walking on the water, I love, I think it's Mark tells it this way. That Jesus was just about to pass by, and the disciples call out, where was, he going? where was he going? I thought he went out there to them, but he went out there by them, at least in one of the Gospels. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out to you. Do you remember that? And I don't know what the other disciples were doing. I don't know if they were snickering in the back, or if they were like, let's see what this fool's going to do. He's so impetuous. He goes from one thing to the next, which Peter often did. And they're watching. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water as if on solid ground, right? And then he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And where's he put them? On the waves. He saw the waves. And he's looking at the waves, and started to sink, right? And he reaches out to the Lord, and the Lord pulls him out. But the thing that I get from that is that in these times that are troubled, if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we're going to get pulled down by the different things. The devil has clever tactics to keep us occupied from one outrage to the next. Fight the battles, but that's not our primary focus. Our primary focus is him. Look to him. Keep your eyes on him. Be moored to him. What solution is there in all this? I'm done, but it's this thought. I don't know that there's a way to save our culture. I think a a culture might be doomed once it focuses on itself. Rather than focusing on something else, it starts to decay. The Bible tells us that people are saved. And even in the Great Commission where it says, that we're to go into all the world and uh, preach the gospel and that we're to uh, teach all nations. It's not talking about uh, cultures proper. When it says all nations, Jesus undoubtedly means the people from all nations. 
So how can we respond to all of this in, in times like today? I think Peter's lesson gives us these three things, that we can, in, in this, by our behavior, we can win followers. Okay? You're not going to win the culture, but you can win a person. Okay? And if enough people get one, it changes culture. Right? But our goal isn't to save culture because cultures are temporal and they will fade. But people are eternal. Every person will outlive this nation. Do you know that? In one destiny or another. Every person. I don't know if you thought about that. People outlast nations and kingdoms. I don't care if it's the Roman Empire. We outlast that in terms of our longevity because you're an eternal being. Kingdoms are temporal. Okay? The second thing is we can live sincerely in our world. We can win followers. We can live sincerely. And that means live for Jesus and don't shy away from showing what living for Jesus looks like. Jesus says, don't take your, don't take your light and put it under a bushel and hide it, uh, but let it shine for all to see. And then I think we can live with joyous hope waiting on God. And this is not just passive. When we hear waiting in the Bible, it's not passively sitting by twiddling our thumbs. It's living in anticipation of that, doing everything that his coming would require. So we live in light of his coming. And so I want to encourage us today not to get taken down by all the turmoil that's going on. Don't get sucked up into all the rhetoric and feel that this world is is uh, just doomed and you're doomed with it. This sinking ship, but you're not on a sinking ship. Not if you're trusting Jesus. Come on, are you with me? That we we are buoyant in hope because of what Christ has done. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention. We're going to sing a song this morning, and um, I'm just going to invite you, if you need prayer, maybe you're feeling it in a particular way. You've heard the message this morning, but you're like, man, these times, they're rough right now. I'm kind of stressed out about things. I'm stressed out about a situation with my family or um, where this culture's going or, or how I'm living within it, and I'd like prayer. Or maybe you would say, I don't know Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I want to I want him to be the foundation of my life and not the shifting stuff that's going on around us. If that's you, I'd like for you to come and just stand here. And uh, it could be anything, but I've mentioned a few things here. Come stand here, and there's going to be somebody that will come and and pray with you. And if you see somebody standing here, you want to pray with them? Come put a hand on a shoulder, and let's pray together for, uh, for one another. And he's our foundation. Father, thank you, Lord, that we can, um, we can know today that you are watching over us and caring for us, and you're setting before us a firm foundation. By trusting in you, that our lives are, are strong and they're impervious to disaster as long as we're looking and, and walking with you. And I pray, God, that you would keep us on that firm foundation. Let us shift our focus and attention to everything that passes, but to be uh, centered upon you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.